1: Don't know the answer? Ask the Naked Scientists.
0: Hello and welcome to this week's Ask the Naked Scientists with me, Sue Marchant, and Chris Smith. Anything exciting happening in the world of science for you, then, Chris?
1: Well, it's fertile, weak as ever, and there is quite an interesting story, actually. Most people have heard of the, the bacterium E. coli, hmm. and it's got a universally bad press. We mostly associate it with disease, and rightly so, because there are some nasty forms of E. coli, things like E. coli 0157, which causes food poisoning. It can cause kidney damage and, and blood problems. This tends to be spread into humans from, say, farm animals and things. There have been some outbreaks of that recently. Uh, it, it's often fatal, too, so it's a nasty infection. There are also... Caught, forms of E. coli that will cause forms of meningitis and it's also one of the commonest causes of urine infections. But it's also one of the commonest bacteria that you find inside the human body. E. coli takes up residence in our gut and the vast majority of the E. coli that we have throughout our lives are harmless. In fact they're good bacteria because what they do is take up space and they stop the bad guys getting a toehold. Therefore, if you wanted to prevent yourself getting ill with the bad forms but not harm the good forms, we really need some kind of vaccine or treatment that could discriminate between the two. And there is a paper that's been published in the journal PNAS, and it's by researchers at Novartis and another international team of of scientists. It's Danilo Gomez Morel. And what he and his team have done is a very clever trick. They've taken some nasty pathogenic forms of E. coli, they have sequenced the genetic material of them, and compared the genetic sequence with the, the DNA sequence of good E. coli bacteria, reasoning that any differences between the two genomes must be where the nastiness lies in the aggressive form, the virulent pathogen form. And they've identified a number of different genes and therefore a number of different antigens, markers on the surface of the bacteria, that single them out. And they've managed to turn this into a vaccine. And they tested this on mice, and using nine of these different antigens, they were able to protect mice from fatal doses of of E. coli without actually affecting the healthy, good E. coli carried naturally by the body. So they're suggesting that if this works in mice, it might also be possible
0: to do it in men. Okay, well, let's fire away with our first question for Dr. Chris. Now, Dom has called in, and he asks, how is deodorant made, and how is the smell put into deodorant to make us all lovely? Chris.
1: Well, most deodorants, and let's think about those antiperspirant deodorants because they're the ones that we most commonly use. The reason for using an antiperspirant being that it actually not just makes you smell nice but also soaks up sweat, and it's sweat that actually fuels the fire that makes us stinky because what happens is that when we sweat, and we tend to sweat in certain discrete areas as we all know, uh, usually, where there are skin folds where two layers of skin get close together. So, that's often the underarm. When water squirts out, that together with dead skin and other things in the environment make an ideal breeding ground for bacteria because it's warm and it's wet and there's food there. And bacteria that live on the skin naturally flourish. And when they flourish, they produce various byproducts of their metabolism. And these include smelly, whiffy compounds. And this is why we end up smelling if we have a hot day and these bacteria increase in their numbers. So a deodorant is there to combat and mask the smell of the bacteria... And that's using the scent which is added, and you can add scents in various ways. Scents are just molecules which have an odour effect. So in other words, when you breathe in those molecules, they bind in the nose and trigger off an olfactory experience, a smell. And the actual way a deodorant works is twofold. One is that it, it deposits some of those scent molecules in the whiffy bits of the body so that you mask the smell that might come from there. But the other way that antiperspirant deodorants work is that they also have an effect on the sweat itself. Most of them contain an aluminium powder or some kind of aluminium compound, sometimes in combination with another element, zirconium. And aluminium, together with zirconium, in various chemical formulations, produces a substance which soaks up lots of water. So it will soak up the water and it turns it into a sort of gel. And that gel plugs the pores up and also makes them shrink and contract so not only does it soak up the water it also reduces the amount of sweat that's produced from these areas the consequence of both of those things is that it reduces the amount that the bacteria grow and this reduces the amount of smell they make so you're masking the smells you're also preventing the smells from from getting uh, made in the first place and that contributes to a much nicer-smelling
0: populace. Um, Leanne from Gilliam says, is diabetic eczema different from ordinary eczema? Any ideas, Chris?
1: Well, diabetes, and I suspect she's probably talking about her legs, um, is associated with sort of skin change in people who have either bad vascular function or in people who have already got bad vascular function and, and the skin is getting infected with things. When you have normal eczema, what's going on there is that there's an, an overreaction or a dysfunction, an abnormality in the way the immune system is working. Usually the immune system is responding to allergens, chemicals in the environment that get through the skin and make the skin inflamed. With diabetes what can happen is that if you have poor vascular function so if the chronic diabetes damages blood vessels which it can do and blood vessels are damaged by chronically or long-term elevations of blood sugar which is what happens with diabetes if you have chronic damage to blood vessels and therefore too little blood flowing into tissues then the tissues can be deprived of oxygen glucose and other nutrients this makes the tissues Less healthy for a start, and so the skin can end up looking a bit shabbier, but also it makes it more prone to infection because the immune system can't use the blood to get there so quickly, and so you can get super infections as well. What are called super infections? This is where even the body's natural bacteria that wouldn't normally be a major problem to you because the immune system's a bit impaired. And there's also more sugar there, which helps the bacteria to grow. They can flourish a bit more. And as a result, you can get more local infections and skin breakdown. And so you can get this sort of diabetic eczema too. Luckily, if you take good care of your distal peripheries, it's usually feet, um, by watching your shoes, watching your nails, and making sure that you eat a good diet and keep the sugars down, you can keep the blood vessels in pretty good shape, and, and that should stop that happening.
0: Um, somebody just called in and say that um, their dog has recently been diagnosed with diabetes and he's taking insulin his skin has become very dandruffy and flaky. Is that the same?
1: Well, the, the, the problem is if you have a chronic disease, and diabetes is, is a chronic disease, it puts a stress on the system. And this can, this can mean that there are various other health problems that can become manifest. Giving a dog insulin in itself, which you'd have to do with an injection, insulin is a natural protein found in the body, um, and that shouldn't provoke dandruff. But what can happen is that if there's too much sugar washing around in the body, then it can encourage microorganisms to grow more than they should. And dogs don't sweat that much, but it's possible that the dog might be licking or, or getting urine on its fur, Dogs do do this Mm. and the sugar that's there could get onto the fur and this will encourage microorganisms to grow, especially yeasts and moulds. There's one called Malassezia, which is a scalp fungus in humans and that's what causes dandruff in people. It's possible there's a relative of that which is flourishing, growing on the dog's skin and that's provoking the same sort of phenomenon in the dog. Um, Hopefully with the insulin treatment um, to get the sugars down that would help the dog and, uh, and the dandruff will go
0: away it's time now to open up the phone lines and uh here we have Anne on the line for dr chris you're through to dr chris Anne. hello
1: i've just been receiving some paperwork from the dystonia society because we think my son might have it and they're talking about using botulinum toxin as a medicine can you tell me how that would work yes of course hello Anne. the answer is that botulism is a kind of bacterium, Clostridium botulinum is the Latin name. I'll take your word for that. Well, these bacteria are nasty because they produce a toxin in the course of growing, and this toxin is botulinum toxin, Mm -hmm. Botox to the likes of people like Kate Moss. No, I didn't say that, I'm just joking. Um, But the the whole point about Botox is the reason it's toxic is that it's actually a fusion of two proteins, two little uh, polymers stuck together, one of which gets it inside certain cells in the body, specifically nerve cells, and the second bit of protein dismantles a special structure in the endings of nerve cells that release nerve transmitter. So when a nerve cell wants to talk from one nerve cell to another nerve cell, when the nerve cell switches on, it pumps out nerve transmitter, which is a chemical which comes out of the first nerve, goes onto the second nerve, and changes its activity. It can only do that if a certain class of proteins called snare proteins are working. And botulism toxin, Botox, dismantles those snare proteins and stops that excretion or secretion or production of this nerve transmitter chemical from the first nerve so it can't talk to the second nerve or whatever target it wants to talk to now botox is actually specific for certain classes of nerve cells those ones which talk to muscles and also nerve cells which talk to certain other things that are what are called effectors in the body and these include sweat glands as well Mm. so in people who have uh, wrinkles botox is good because if you put the toxin in near the nerve though the protein carries it Inside the nerve ending it destroys those snare proteins and then the nerve can't talk to the muscle very well so it makes it slightly weaker and the muscle relaxes a little bit because it's not getting the same amount of drive from the nerve and so instead of the face being pulled into a wrinkle, assuming we're talking face, you flatten out that area. In people who have a condition called hyperhidrosis, which is where you sweat too much, If you have Botox injected into the nerves that drive sweat glands, these are called pseudomotor nerves, you can achieve the same thing. You reduce the amount of nerve transmitter that comes out, and that means that there's less drive, less activity being pumped into the sweat gland, so it becomes a bit less active and you sweat a bit less. The effect is reversible in the sense that you can make new snare proteins in your nerve endings and so the effect does wear off after a number of weeks which is why you have to go back in and put more Botox in but it does last for a period of time before the effect kicks in and in recent years doctors have begun to use this effect therapeutically to great effect not just for sweaty hands but for other conditions like dystonia I don't know which bit of your son's body is affected maybe his head and neck but there are a a number of well, there are a number of uh, areas in the body where, in some conditions, cerebral palsy is another good, good example of this, where muscles can go into, into spasm or, or muscles can be a bit too tight. You can get one muscle that's a bit too strong and the other one which is a bit too weak and a joint can go into a funny position. If you put a little bit of Botox into the muscle that's a bit too strong, it becomes slightly weaker and this balances the two muscles up again and they work much better together. And this can help people, instead of having abnormal postures or if one leg doesn't work properly because the muscles on one side are a bit too strong, you can get the posture much better, which is much more comfortable for the person and they can move much better. Um, and so that's probably what they've got in mind for your son.
0: Anne, thank you very much indeed. That's OK. Thank you, thank you take for your help. OK, bye-bye. Bye. Now, it's Ian in Spooner Row, Chris, who would like to know, and he thinks it could be a silly question, but I don't think so. He asks, do gases behave like solids and liquids with gravity? For example, if we introduced a small volume of oxygen into a vacuum, would it move downwards? That's from Ian in Spooner Row. Chris? The answer is absolutely, because gases
1: weigh something, in fact, if you were to take a plastic bag, and Dr Dave does this very well as a kitchen science experiment, he gets an old bin bag and just waves it around in the air and says, how much does the air in this bag weigh? And most people are really quite shocked when he says, well, I've got about 70 grams of air in here. Because the air is made up of atoms, some of them join together to make molecules, in the same way that a piece of wood or a piece of metal is made of atoms, and atoms weigh something, and therefore if you have lots of them, you have something that weighs something, so the air weighs something too. And because atoms come in different shapes and sizes, as a result, some weigh more than others. That means that some components of the atmosphere weigh more than others. A hydrogen atom is very, very light, whilst an oxygen atom is much, much bigger than a hydrogen atom and much heavier in comparison. So, if you take some gases you can demonstrate that they will follow gravity. And there's a very elegant example you can show for yourself, actually. If you take some bicarbonate of soda, um, this is baking powder, Mm -hmm. and you tip some vinegar onto it so it fizzes up, and you see it going shh like uh, lemonade, what's going on there is that it's making um, carbon dioxide because the acid in the vinegar, the citric acid, is reacting with the bicarbonate to produce some carbon dioxide and some water. The carbon dioxide is heavier, being CO2, than oxygen O2 or nitrogen N2 in the atmosphere. So the carbon dioxide sits in the jug that you've done this in and you can pour it out. And if you pour it out in front of a light source, such as a light bulb or in front of a, a pen torch, you can actually watch on the wall and see a shadow of the gas as it pours out, and it's because the light is changing speed or refracting as it goes through the gas because the density is different to the atmosphere, and you can actually physically see yourself pouring the gas. And if you, if you want another demonstration, if you light a candle on the table and then just tip the jug, without pouring any of the liquid out, you'll see the candle goes out because the carbon dioxide falls out of the jug, downwards onto the candle, and puts out the flame. So the answer is gases definitely do have densities and they can follow density
0: gradients. Excellent. Let's go to the email this time. This is from uh, Mason. Why can't we tickle ourselves? The answer is it's probably down to the way that the
1: brain interacts with and interprets signals coming in from the environment. If you think about it, we're all wearing clothes. Well, I hope we're wearing clothes. Even on The Naked Scientists, we sometimes wear clothes. We're also <laughs> continuously being assailed with sensory information. There are things going on in, in the vision, visual world around me. I'm only paying attention, though, to the one thing I'm looking at at the time. I'm not sitting here thinking about the clothes I've got on, the seat that's pressing up under me and holding me up and stopping me falling on the floor. But at the same time, those stimuli, that information is coming into my body. In the same way, when I reach out and touch something, I'm not conscious of the fact that I'm moving my body, but I am conscious of the fact that as soon as I touch a surface, I feel the surface and I pay lots of attention to the thing I've just touched. So what we think is going on is that the brain has a clever way of subtracting from the incoming information that it's picking up from the environment anything which it's made happen itself. So any internally generated stimulus, the brain subtracts away because it made them happen so that we can pay most attention to new things coming in from outside. So because when you tickle yourself, what you're doing is deciding to tickle yourself, because you're making that movement intentionally, the brain cancels out the tickle because you know it's going
0: to happen. And therefore, you don't experience it as a tickle. Uh, This is from Bob in Dunstable and he says with all the tremendous forces in the centre of the earth what are the chances of the earth being blown to smithereens from Bob in Dunstable? He's worried about that volcano again I reckon Chris. What do you say? I'd probably
1: reassure Bob that the earth has been here for four and a half billion years and that's a pretty long time for something catastrophic to have happened to it and it hasn't. We're still here. And also the Earth experienced a much worse time earlier in its history when it was almost completely demolished by another planet slamming into it. A Mars-sized planet called Thea smashed into the Earth about four and a half billion years ago. And, and actually the collision created our moon that we see today. And the Earth has survived all that. We're still here. So I think we have every reason to be optimistic that the planet's probably got enough still in it to at least last our lifetimes.
0: Chris in Billericke says that he had read that a woman had an operation and woke up with a Chinese accent and also had read previously that someone had woken up with a Canadian accent. Is there anything in this? Is this real?
1: It sounds weird, doesn't it? But there is a phenomenon called foreign accent syndrome. Uh, There was a case recently of a lady who came round after, I think she had a stroke actually, and she developed an Eastern European accent. Now, it might be that these people really are developing some kind of foreign accent, but what's probably more likely is that when you have an injury to the nervous system or some kind of problem with the brain... When you begin to speak, because speech involves such fine control of so many muscles, and you think about it, just in order to speak, you've got to move all your facial muscles, you've got to move your tongue, you've got to control your diaphragm so that the rate of air coming across your vocal cords is right, you've got to adjust the tension in your vocal cords so they vibrate the right way. This involves so many very careful, well-crafted muscle movements. That all it takes is that to be slightly distorted or adjusted and it can change the character of a voice so one possibility to explain so-called foreign accent syndromes is that something goes wrong with the brain's motor system and so people begin to produce sounds in a slightly different way than they would do normally and this changes the way their voice sounds and this is what makes it sound almost like people are speaking with a foreign accent.
0: This is from uh, Mark in Dunstable. Hi Mark. Um, he asked, do you think that scientists could come up with a bacteria to eat up the oil spills? It's an excellent question Mark and the answer is
1: they're already doing it. Um, bacteria are really quite incredible things. They are probably some of the most um, incredible organisms we have on the planet really in terms of what they can do biochemically. And what scientists realised quite some time ago now is that if you go to places where there are lots of something, you will find inevitably bacteria that can degrade that very thing. So scientists have been to old gas works and old coal gas works especially where you find lots of heavy tars and oils and old refineries where there's oil spillages. And because bacteria that are naturally present in the environment have been exposed over a long period of time to these particular chemicals, the bacteria have evolved, they've gained genetic and metabolic pathways that enable them to use as food those rather unusual things, including crude oil, there are bacteria out there that can quite happily metabolise and break down oil, crude oil. And various uh, systems and things are now in place so that these bacteria can be used to help clean up things like oil spills. So I suspect that as well as the detergents that people are helping to clean up the Gulf of Mexico at the moment, one of the things they may try and use will be bacteria that naturally can degrade oil. And there's no environmental risk here because the bacteria are usually environmentally normal. They're they're found in the environment anyway, the kind of bacteria that can do this. But also, as soon as all of the food they're eating, the oil, is gone, then the bacterial numbers drop again because they run out of food and in the same way as anything deprived of food will eventually disappear, so do the
0: bacteria. Now, this one has come from Mary, and she asks, she has a serious question about uh, the seeming ability as not to feel pain, particularly pain after surgery. Why do some people not feel any pain?
1: Well, there's a very interesting bit of research that got published a few years ago by a Cambridge University researcher, Jeff Woods. He's based at the Cambridge Institute for Medical Research. And he went to Pakistan and came across some families there where the individuals in these families could not feel pain. For instance, the children would do very outlandish things. They would put their hands into flames or boiling water. They would impale themselves with horrible things. One of them, unfortunately also, as a treat for his friends, jumped off a roof because it was his birthday and and killed himself. And the reason for this is that they just could not experience pain. And Jeff Woods was intrigued because he realised that there must be, because these people were otherwise completely normal, there must be something special about their nervous system in that there's something wrong with it. But the fact that this trait was running in families suggested it was something genetic and the inheritance pattern, how it passed from one member of a family to another, strongly suggested that it could just be down to a single Gene. So he and a team of colleagues got DNA from a number of these individuals from two key families in Pakistan. And they were able to home in initially on the genetic region and then find the very gene itself, which is called SCN9A, this gene. And it is only turned on in the cells, the nerve cells that we use to experience and feel pain. And what this gene does is it makes a tiny pore, an iron channel that sits on the surface of a nerve cell, and when tissue, where that nerve cell is, gets damaged, this allows the nerve cell to get excited and then send nerve impulses into the brain. So if you turn off that channel, that suggests that the nerve cell can't get excited and that stops it telling the brain that something hurts. And that's why these people in Pakistan could do these outrageous and outlandish things without feeling any pain, because that gene in them wasn't working properly. Now, more recently, what Jeff Woods and his colleagues have done, they published a paper, I think in the last six months, in the journal PNAS, is they looked at the same gene, the SCN9A gene, but they asked, what about general members of the population? Do they have different forms of this gene to account for the fact that some people seem to be very sensitive to pain and other people don't? And they did it in a very clever way because they got thousands of people who had arthritis... And they asked these people with arthritis, please tell us how much pain do you feel? And then what they did was to look at the x-rays of the joints of these people to see how severe their arthritis was. So they matched up how much pain the people felt with how severe their arthritis was. And what they found was that some people had quite severe arthritis but didn't feel very much pain, whilst Mm. other people had relatively trivial arthritis and still reported quite high levels of pain they then went and looked at that SCN9A gene in these people and they found that there are two different forms of it at least. There's a very common G-form and a less common A-form. And the people with the less common A-form feel more pain than the people with the G-form, even though they may have the same amount of, say, arthritis or tissue damage or something like that. Hmm. So I suspect that the people we see in the population who are resistant to pain may well be blessed with if it is a blessing, because it can be harmful not to be able to feel pain, but may be blessed with a form of that gene that means that they're able to experience slightly less pain when they're injured than some other people that are more sensitive.
0: That's just amazing, isn't it? I think we'll have to be, uh, you know, uh, everybody have a, a gene passport so that you know what's, you know, what's you know, going you, to affect you what's not. You the,
1: the nail the head, yeah. if that's the right analogy to use. Yeah. Because when patients go into hospital... We tend to use, from a pain relief point of view, a very much one-size-fits-all approach whereby you think we'll write someone up for X amount of painkiller based on who they are, how old they are and we now may be needing to consider the fact that there may be genetic predispositions to feeling more pain in certain people and therefore some people might need a different cocktail of drugs or a bigger cocktail of drugs than the next person
0: an email from annie who says she's wondering if deafness is genetic she's now going deaf enough to need to use a hearing aid for the everyday living and her younger sister is also going deaf as well what do you reckon
1: well, there's a lady called Professor Karen Steele, who works at the Sanger Institute, where they sequenced a third of the human genome, actually, ten years ago, um, and she's very interested in the genetics of hearing, and I did ask her whether there are associations between genes and deafness with age, and she said that, yes, that's definitely the case, there are some genes which predispose a person to with age losing their hearing. But it's like all these things. There are genes that predispose you to high blood pressure. There are genes that predispose you to have a stroke. And it's just the genetic hands that we're dealt. Unfortunately, there's no easy way to get old. Um, And as we do get old, we encounter loud noises in the environment. We also encounter damage to the ear chemically by inflammatory chemicals in the blood. And these erode and damage the tissues that cause the um, transduction, the transformation of sound waves into brain waves and unfortunately it erodes our hearing with age and some people are more resilient genetically than others. Mm. Um, It's unfortunately an inevitable consequence of the ageing process.
0: She also goes on to say that um, the audiologists tell her that she's actually hypersensitive to low-frequency sounds, hearing them better than people with normal hearing. Is that a common thing and could it be put to use to hear stuff I actually want to hear? Unfortunately...
1: No, because the way most hearing aids are working is that they're seeking to amplify the sounds uh, across the board. There are some newer generation hearing aids that can... Be a bit more selective and they can be tailored to the patient's ear needs so they can turn up the frequencies the person needs more than just non-specifically amplifying everything. But hearing aids are actually a bit of a black art really and, and, and the, the way the hearing system works is so complicated and poorly understood that researchers are only really just beginning to scratch the surface of how we can make people hear better and make better hearing
0: aids. That's it for this week.